Some of you might remember that we're actually working our way slowly but surely through the Belgian Confession. We've not done that for a number of weeks, but we're going to look again at Belgian Confession Article 2. You can find that on page 499 of your books of praise. And as we're about to read that article, Belgian Confession Article 2, it's helpful to be reminded that the author of this confession Guido de Bre was willing to die for the sake of what is written here. This is serious. Belgian Confession, Article 2, how God makes himself known to us. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most beautiful book wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many letters leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, as the Apostle St. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20. All these things are sufficient to convict men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, as far as is necessary for us in this life to his glory and to our salvation. So brothers and sisters, this afternoon, we are going to ask and try to answer a very difficult question. It's a question that my senior catechism students asked me not so long ago and I responded and then I went home and said I should have responded with more nuance. You ever have that where someone asks you something and you go home and say, Man, I didn't answer it how I wanted to answer it. Luckily for me, I get a second chance. The question is this. What happens to people who never get a chance to hear the gospel? What happens to people who never get a chance in their life to hear about Jesus? And then they die, and they appear before the throne of God. What happens to them? Sometimes the question is phrased like this. Imagine there's an island out in the middle of the Pacific and there's some innocent man out on the island and, he, and he, he looks around at creation and he understands there's a God and he never gets to hear the gospel, he never receives a missionary to his shores and he dies, what happens to him? Well, that question is actually easy to answer. If an innocent man on an island in the Pacific dies without knowing Jesus, well then he goes to heaven because he's innocent and he gets to heaven on the basis of his own merits. Unfortunately, no such man exists in the world and never has. We only have sinners in places that haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what happens to them? Are they condemned, even though they've never heard of Jesus? Are they perhaps saved? Or is there a middle ground? Put up your hand if you are entirely confident of your answer. Well, actually this is not at all a hypothetical question, is it? It's not a hypothetical question about a person on an island somewhere. Operation World is a guide that you can find online that is sort of the definitive guide for prayer for people around the world, for all the different people groups around the world. And they estimate that as of 2019, there are 2.2 billion people on earth that have not heard the name of Jesus. 2.2 billion people 
that not only today have not heard of Jesus, but they do not have any missionaries working in their people group to tell them about Jesus. There is no church there that can reach out to them. A little less than one-third of the world's population. What happens to 2.2 billion people who've never heard of Christ when they die and appear before the throne of God? This is not a hypothetical question. Will they be condemned? Will they be saved? That's the question we're gonna struggle with. And it's a struggle. Here's the first option. The first option comes from Bible-believing Christians who look at Romans 2, which we just read, and says, hey, that seems to say that God doesn't judge people on what they don't know. And so for those 2.2 billion people, if they believe in God through his revelation in creation around them, and they can do that with a clear conscience, then God's revelation in creation is sufficient for their salvation. It's enough so they can be saved. We would call this inclusivism. And actually within that broad term, there's a bunch of different ways that people look at that. That broadly ranges from those who think that everybody who doesn't hear about Jesus is saved, through to those people who would say no, but just a certain number would, have, yeah, would be saved. Right? So you can find authors like C.S. Lewis who would fit into this group. The other option is called exclusivism. And they would say that no, for those 2.2 billion people, belief in God through his revelation in creation is not sufficient for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so if you never get the chance to hear and then believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved and you'll be condemned. Belgian Confession, Article 2, says that God's creation, his revelation through creation, is sufficient not to save, but to convict men and leave them without excuse. And that God has made himself more fully and more clearly known through his holy and divine word for our salvation. And so you need to hear that divine word in order to be saved through Jesus Christ. So the Belgian Confession in this article teaches the position of exclusivism. It teaches that the 2.2 billion people in the world who only have the revelation of creation and not the revelation of God's holy word cannot be saved. Now if you're like me, that doesn't taste very good. That doesn't feel very good and perhaps you have an emotional reaction or perhaps you have, a, you have an intellectual reaction where you might say, yeah, I agree with that after all, it says it in the Belgian Confession, but there's something in me that goes, yeah, I don't like that. This is really hard stuff. All right, what I think we need to do is we need to say, okay, we're, we, we, the Belgian Confession teaches that we're exclusivists, but we need to have a big footnote on that, and we need to explain that in nuanced terms as to what we mean. It's not as black and white as we think. Okay, we really need a big footnote on this so that we clearly reflect what Scripture says. So first of all, we have to say this, that God does not judge people on the basis of what they have not heard. 
God does not judge people on the basis of what they have not heard. If you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will not be punished for not believing in Jesus. That would be grossly unjust and totally unfair. People who have not heard about Jesus will not be condemned for their lack of faith in Jesus. The Bible does not teach that. The man on the island is not condemned for not believing in a Jesus he hasn't heard of. We also know from Matthew chapter 11, for instance, that those with no knowledge of Christ will be judged less severely. That's what scripture says. In Matthew 11, verse 20 through 24, it says this. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades for the mighty works done in you. If they were done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is teaching that the punishment for those who have not heard the gospel of Christ will be more bearable, will be different or less than others. That's not to say that that condemnation will not be real and extremely difficult. But we wanna take scripture as scripture presents itself. Let's dig into this question, first of all, by starting and looking at Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. So the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, the original sin of man where we're inclined by nature to hate God and their neighbor being children of wrath, as people who are sinners, we suppress the truth. And what's the truth that they suppress? It's not the truth about Jesus because they haven't heard about Jesus. You can't suppress truth that you don't know about. So it's not that he, Paul is saying they're suppressing the truth about Christ. What is the truth that they're suppressing? Well, you look in verse 19 to 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of a world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts they were darkened. In other words, the truth that they are suppressing is the truth about God the Father, not the truth about God the Son, because they don't know about the Son. God has clearly, he's plainly revealed himself through the created world, and people have not given God the honor and the thanks that he deserves for that. And therefore, Paul says, they are without excuse. So what's, what's the excuse that they're without? The excuse is, is that they can't say, well, I didn't know about God. I didn't, I didn't have a clue. They can use that excuse about Jesus. The 2.2 billion people on earth who have never heard about Christ have a justifiable excuse to say, we never heard about Jesus. But they have heard about God the Father. They have heard about, Christ, uh, about God the Father. They have not been in ignorance about the Creator. Paul said they knew God, but they didn't honor God or give thanks to him. Their hearts were darkened. So then you might ask the question, okay, but what happens, what about if they just worshiped God 
in a different way, like through a different religion. So you have all kinds of native religions around the world, traditional religions around the world that worship the creator God. And then what about all the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Muslims who have grown up in those cultures and have never heard about Jesus and yet they're worshiping the creator in their own way? They didn't know any better. They could be sincere believers still in a creator God. So what about them? Well, Paul continues in in verse 21. They knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity, dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creator rather as the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. So trying to worship God by worshiping creation or worshiping idols is not a positive thing. That's not like God says, well, you get brownie points for trying through idolatry. That's not what, and that's not what our text says. Our text says the opposite. God clearly reveals his glory, and when that glory is replaced by a worship of creatures or by idols, then that religion is not pleasing to God. It's displeasing to God. It's idolatry. Just because people have not heard the gospel but are religious in some sense, doesn't change the fact that their idolatry is insulting to the one true God. So Romans 1 does not say, see that other religions are laudable, they're an honest attempt to search for God. Romans 1 sees other religions as a fundamental rejection of the one true God. That's not to say that there's not things in other religions that we could learn from, or things that we could even recognize as, as having truth to it. That's not to say that but they are fundamentally a rejection of God's revelation in creation. That's what we'll say as far as what we've read in Romans 1. Now have a look at what Romans 2 says. Here it gets a little bit more complicated. Romans 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, Gentiles who have never heard the gospel, they've never received the law of God, they don't have any of the scriptures, they have a law written on their hearts, They have a sense of right and wrong. People across the world have a sense of right and wrong. Their conscience bears witness to their keeping of their sense of right and wrong. Everybody in the world, whether you've been exposed to the gospel of Christ or not, has a sense of right and wrong, and they also have consciences that they can judge themselves whether or not they're acting according to that sense of right and wrong. And God, says Paul, will judge them according to how they've responded to the revelation of God in creation and whether or not they've lived according to their own ideas of the law written on their hearts according to their own consciences. So let me ask you this question. Do you live with a clean conscience? Do you live with according to your own ethic, according to your own idea of right and wrong? Do you do that 100% of the time? 
Of course you don't. Neither do I. You know when you don't live according to what you really believe is right or wrong. And in fact, all people on earth would admit that when they're honest. Everybody would say, Christians and non-Christians would say, yeah, I don't always live according to how I know that I should live or how I want to live. I don't even live according to my own self-described ethic as an atheist, right? The rest of Romans, the rest of scripture explain that, that the sin and in, in the, the original sin is just pervasive. It, it, it's inside of us and it's in everything in our life so that we don't live according to how we even think we ought to live. Unbelievers don't even live according to how they think they ought to live. They don't live with clear consciences. And so if you have an unbeliever, if you have 2.2 billion people who have not heard the name of Jesus and who have the revelation of the Father through creation and yet are, have twisted ways of worshiping that creator through idolatry, through other religions, and who don't themselves live according to their own conscience of what's right and wrong, according to the law written on their heart, the conclusion is that those people are condemned. And you might say, that sounds unfair. I came across this saying the other day. At the trial of God, we will ask, why did you allow all this? And the answer will be an echo. Why did you allow all this? You see, God has told us already how to resolve this reality that we find difficult to accept, the reality of so many people not knowing of Christ and being condemned as sinners. He's told us how to resolve that. He's told us, go and make disciples of all nations. Go, make disciples of all nations. So we might ask, that sounds unfair, how can the Lord allow all of this? And I wonder if his echo to the church will be, why did you allow all that? It's why we sang the first verse of facing a task unfinished, not just because it's a nice song, which it is, but because it's true. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know you, renew before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. It's hard truth, brothers and sisters. If you feel uncomfortable with the fact that the Belgian Confession teaches us an exclusivist position, you should also feel very uncomfortable with our own lack of missionary zeal. Now, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Because we do need to make sure that we're trying to treat the subject with all of the biblical nuance that scripture gives us. It does say in Romans chapter two that they show that the work of their law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them 
on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. It seems to suggest that in the conflicting thoughts of the unbeliever who's never heard of Christ, that the possibility exists that they could be excused? Seems to suggest that possibility. And we have other texts like Acts 17, 26 to 27, which says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And Peter says in Acts 10, truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So we have to ask ourselves the question. We, we say, yes, we understand what scripture says. We understand that you know, we would accept the exclusivist position that the Belgian Confession is arguing for wholeheartedly, but we have to ask the question to ourselves, is it possible, is it possible that God can save some people without them ever hearing the gospel? Is that possible? And then right after that, we'd have to say, well, not only is that possible, but it's 100% true. Of course he saves some people without them hearing the gospel. Who does he save without hearing the gospel? Your children, your children, who died in infancy, who never heard the name of Jesus. Your children who died in miscarriage, who never had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess in the Canons of Dort, Article 1, Part 17, since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of their gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. That's our confession. So we do confess that it is very possible and it is true that the Lord does save some people without them ever hearing the gospel and without them ever having faith in Jesus Christ. We would say that he still saves them in Jesus Christ, but despite an entire lack of faith and never having had the chance to hear of the Lord. An interesting side question on that is this. What happens to all of the aborted children in the world? The millions of aborted children across the world, what happens to them? I'm gonna have a discussion after church up front here with anybody who wants to come and talk about that. There's differing opinions within our, uh, within our church federation, within the reformed world on that. I have a particular opinion on that, but I can't say it with as much surety as I can other things, and I'm not gonna talk about that here, but we can discuss that after the service if you'd like, if you're interested on the eternal destination of the millions of aborted children in the world. For now, let's just paint this scenario. There is a person who has never heard of Jesus Christ. That person does perceive clearly in the creation, in the general revelation of God, the, the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and his divine nature. And that person, seeing in the created world that there is a creator and that he must be glorious and mighty and, 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 a, and a wonderful creator, that person 
realizes that, and then there's me, and I'm, my conscience is afflicted because I know that I, I don't even live according to how I think I should live, and so you imagine that that person then cries out to say, God, have mercy on me, I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. What would happen to that person? What would happen to that person? D.A. Carson has written a big fat book called The Gagging of God. And in that book, speaking about Acts 17 and Romans 2, he says this, I quote. It, he's using careful language. It may be the case that God has, in some cases, opened the eyes of some people to recognize the existence and graciousness of their maker and turn to him in repentance and faith, imploring him for mercy. But the text of scripture does not say that this has taken place. I repeat, it's not what the text says, but the text does not absolutely shut the door on that possibility. So what he's saying, there seems to be a possibility anyway. Scripture doesn't say that this does happen, but it is within the realm of possibility that you can have someone who's never heard the gospel but recognizes the eternal attributes of God, the glorious attributes of God in creation and cries out to God for mercy that it's possible that that person might be saved, he says. J.I. Packer, in his little book called God's Word, says this. He says, we can safely say three things and then there's one thing that we cannot say safely. We can safely say that if any pagan reached the point of throwing himself on his maker's mercy for pardon, then we can safely say, well, then it was God's grace that brought him there, not on his own. And we can also safely say that God would save anyone he would bring that far. And there he uses the text from Acts 10 where Peter says, truly understand that God shows no partiality in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. And in Romans 10, the Lord saves those who call upon him. And he says you could also safely say that anyone saved in that manner would learn in the next world that they were saved through Christ. But then he says this, what we cannot safely say is that God ever does actually save anybody in this way. We simply don't know. So he's trying to be careful with this. Saying the Bible doesn't tell us that there are actually people who have not heard the gospel but who recognize the existence and the graciousness of their maker, turn to him in repentance and ask him for mercy. The Bible doesn't say that those people exist or have ever existed, but it does leave the possibility to be open. It is also within the realm of biblical possibility that God might save somebody who does this. But the Bible doesn't tell us that God has ever done so. And now you might be like, well this sounds like theological tongue twisting. But what these authors are trying to do, what I'm trying to do this afternoon, is to do justice to the text of scripture and to give a nuanced response. Now, some of you might be asking, okay, so that's D.A. Carson, he's sort of a Reformed Baptist guy, and then there's uh, you know, Packer, he's an Anglican, is there any, any Reformed guys? So let me, let me tell you what Herman Bavinck says. So for those who don't know, Herman Bavinck is recognized as one of the the world's greatest Calvinist scholars. He's a Dutch Reformed scholar. When our Canadian Reformed seminary was looking for a new name, I had a Canadian Reformed pastor said that some people were throwing around the name of calling it the Bavinck Theological Seminary. So it gives you an idea of, of his, his worthiness as a, as a theologian. This is what Bavinck says in Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 4, Holy Spirit Church and New Creation on page 726 to 727. He says this, in light of scripture, 
with regard to the salvation of pagans, we cannot get beyond abstaining from a firm judgment in either a positive or a negative sense. That's what he says. In other words, he's saying we cannot be too dogmatic, too black and white, cut and dry, about the salvation of those who have not heard the gospel. We have to abstain from a firm judgment. He's not saying, oh, we just don't know. He's saying you abstain from a firm judgment. He would be an exclusivist. He said we have every reason to believe that those 2.2 billion people on earth have, are, are not, will not be saved, but we will not be too dogmatic about that. We will not give such a firm judgment. And then he argues that really as a reformed person, the reformed people are really the only ones who can give this response with confidence. Because he says reformers have always emphasized that it is the Lord who is sovereign in predestination and the salvation of people. That God can regenerate people for eternal life without them hearing the gospel. And he quotes, for instance, the, the second Helvetic Confession in Article 1. It says, at the same time we recognize that God can illuminate whom and when he will, even without the external ministry that is of the word of God, that's in his power. We don't limit God that way. And then the Westminster Confession says this, elect infants dying in their infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases This applies also to other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So where does this leave us? Our summary is this. The Belgian Confession teaches us clearly that the general general revelation of God in creation is not sufficient to save men. It's sufficient to convict them and leave them without excuse. The sad reality is this. The 2.2 billion people who have not heard of Jesus stand condemned, not for their failure not to believe in Jesus, who they've never heard of, but on the basis of their failure to worship the Father who has revealed himself in creation. They're condemned on the basis of their sin, their failure also to live according to the law written in their own heart. We have no reason to believe that those people will be saved. We have every reason to believe that they won't be. And yet, We want to stick to scripture and not gloss over difficult passages like Romans 2, and we want to honor the sovereignty of God, so we confess that God is able, as he does with our children, to save people without hearing the gospel. And so we cannot know for certain, but it is is in the realm of of possibility that some of those 2.2 billion people who have not heard the gospel could be saved by God. And I would add that if that possibility is actually true and we cannot know, then given what scripture says about the pervasive, rebellious, idolatrous sinfulness of human beings, we would conclude that that number, if it is possible, would be very small. And so we sing verse two of facing the task unfinished, where other lords beside you hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied you defy you still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. Where does that leave us? It leaves us with this. It leaves us with Romans 10, 13, to 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 2.2 billion people who have not heard the name of Jesus. 90% of the people groups in India are unreached people groups. They have not heard of Jesus and there's no church in their people group who's can bring it to them. 82% of the people groups in China, 98% of them in Pakistan, 90% of them in Bangladesh, 97% of the people groups in Nepal. And worldwide, 81% of Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus do not personally know a Christian who can teach them the name of Jesus. How are they gonna call on him if they don't believe in him? And how are they gonna believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how are they gonna hear him if nobody goes to preach to them? And how is anybody gonna preach to them unless they're sent? Guido de Bre was willing to die to preach the gospel preached in the Belgian Confession. He was willing to die in order to have that good news of Jesus Christ preached to people who were dying in their sins. If we want to call ourselves reformed, we have to take the torch from Guido de Bre's hand as it fell when he died as the martyr for the faith and say, we'll take it now. That's why we sing in the last verses of this song. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, that same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To you we yield our powers. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. Forth on your errand, send us to labor for your sake. May the church of Jesus Christ, may our church say, Amen.